as you know, we are an elder-led church, and one aspect of that is that we're always looking to identify and ordain elders, uh, qualified men, godly men, to lead the church. As part of that, the elders are recommending that Alan McBrayer, who you know very well, uh, be ordained an elder. Uh, Alan and Sarah have been with Bayou City Fellowship for, I think, five plus years. Uh, they started at Spring Branch. They saw the light and came to Tomball. And, uh, and so we, we're, we're recommending that uh, Alan be ordained an elder. And the process is that once an announcement is made, uh, you have two weeks uh, to let your lead pastor here, Kevin, in this case, know whether there are any concerns as to why Alan should not be ordained an elder. And uh, depending on what comes through, then the decision is made and we go forward. So I just wanted to uh, let you know that. If there are any concerns, please uh, communicate with Kevin. Kevin at BayouCityFellowship.com. That'll work. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 9. Let's continue to worship God as we look into his word and hear from him. 2 Kings chapter 9 and 10. That's where we will be. In about three weeks, uh, some of us are really going to get very busy. College football is almost here. I think weeks, there you go. <laughs> Week zero starts, I think, on the 28th of August or something. That's what I read. And so for some of us, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Eating and drinking, grilling and tailgating. Because football is here. It's the most wonderful time of the year. A few years ago, I got a Christmas gift uh, to go to the Fiesta Bowl. I think it was a Fiesta Bowl. Clemson was playing Ohio State. And our son and our money went to Clemson, so we're Clemson fans. Uh, now, in all of these games, you find that you have different kinds of fans. Uh, you have these savage fans. It's not hard to spot them. Uh, they're college football fans who lose all sense of morals and civility once the opening kick is underway. Now, if their team is not living up to their expectations, you might find them screaming and shouting at their coaches and players. Then you've got these fair-weather fans. Uh, it's not hard to spot them either. They show up only if there is a good chance that their team will win. In fact, they have a few favorite teams so that they can always be with a team that wins. And fair-weather fans don't have a problem walking up and leaving the game either. First quarter, third quarter, if their team is not winning, they walk away. And then you have those devoted fans. For devoted fans, college football is not merely a sport, it's religion. The game is a service, with the opening hymn of the national anthem perhaps, and, and all kinds of praise and worship, and some lamenting of course as well, through the game, and uh, it is not merely sport, it is religion. They bleed their school colors. They have this look of pure dedication in their eyes, and when their team wins, they have unspeakable joy. And when their team loses, they have unconsolable grief. Wife's birthday, wedding anniversary, children's birthday, forget about it. It's game time today. 
And then there are some of us who really don't care who's playing, <laughs> who wins or who loses. Such is our environment. Uh, in other words, you can identify the fans or the type of follower by looking at what they say and do. And those who follow Jesus, we can be disinterested followers, fair-weather followers, or devoted followers. So in our passage today, we're going to look at a king named Jehu, who seemed to be a devoted follower, but really was not. What made him look like one? And why did he just look like one, but wasn't a devoted follower? Let's find out. So let's start with chapter 9, verse 1. Now Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Gird up your loins, in other words, get ready to travel, and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. So Elisha the prophet calls one of the members of the group of the sons of the prophet. There is probably a guild of prophets. And so Elisha tells one of them, get ready to travel. Take a flask of oil with you. Verses 2 and 3. When you arrive there, Ramoth Gilead, search out Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and bid him arise from among his brothers and bring him to an inner room. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. So this prophet is asked to go with a flask of oil, identify Jehu, ask him to stand up, take him into a private room and anoint him. Now the word Jehu means Yahweh is he. Or this personal covenant keeping God is our Lord. He is Lord. So every time his mama called him Jehu, if he paid attention, he would, it would remind him that God, our, pers our personal covenant-keeping God, he is indeed Lord. So take him into a private room and anoint him with oil as the king over Israel. And then he says, open the door and flee and do not wait. Don't hang around. Anoint him king and flee. Why? Because he is anointing somebody as a king when there is already another king. So this is trouble for him. So he says, leave. And then verses 4 through 10 tells us what this prophet did. He anoints Jehu. He comes and identifies him. Uh, Jehu arose, verse 6, and went into the house. I'm sorry, the prophet arose and went into the house. And he poured the oil on his head and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. Not just as king of the nation of Israel, it is king over the Lord's people, Israel. These are Yahweh's people. You rule them as the Lord's people, not just your own. If they are Yahweh's people, he's got to be careful in how he rules. He's got to make sure that he creates a climate that allows for God's people to be able to worship him. So he is asked to do that. And then he says something else, verse 7. You shall strike the house of Ahab your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. So 
he says, wipe out the entire house of Ahab. Now, why is that? First Kings 16 tells us why this thing about Ahab. Uh, I have that listed, uh, or on, on, that would be slide, uh, the next slide there, would be First Kings 16. Ahab's son of Omri began to rule over Israel in the 38th year of King Asa's reign in Judah. He reigned in Samaria 22 years. But Ahab's son of Omri did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. And as though it were not enough to follow the sinful example of Jeroboam, he married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbal of the Sidonians, and he began to bow down in worship of Baal. First, Ahab built a temple and an altar for Baal in Samaria. Then he set up an Asherah pole. He did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. Now, in Deuteronomy, God had instructed his people, don't intermarry with nations around you because those spouses will turn your hearts away from, the, from God to serving other gods. Ahab obviously didn't care, as we see. And then we read in 1 Kings 18 that Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord. She even wanted to destroy or get rid of Elijah. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, verse 8, and I will cut off Ahab, I will cut off from Ahab every male person, both bond and free in Israel. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. Now, what is it about Jeroboam we've got to understand? Why does he make the house of Ahab be like the one of Jeroboam? In 1 Kings 14, we read this. I, I ripped the kingdom away from the family of David and gave it to you. This is prophet Ahijah telling uh, Jeroboam. But you have not been like my servant David, who obeyed my commands and followed me with all his heart and always did whatever I wanted. So following God is always doing whatever he wanted. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. You have made other gods for yourself and have made me furious with your gold calves. And since you have turned your back on me, I will bring disaster on your dynasty and will destroy every one of your male descendants, slave and free alike, anywhere in Israel. I will burn up your royal dynasty as one burns up trash until it is all gone. The members of Jeroboam's family who die in the city will be eaten by dogs, and those who die in the field will be eaten by vultures. I, the Lord, have spoken. So this is how Jeroboam was treated. This is how God saw Jeroboam. And he says here, the house of Ahab is going to face the same, uh, same end as Jeroboam did. As Jeroboam, the son of Nabath, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. Verse 11 through 13, so what do all those people around Jehu do? They, they say, they spread their cloaks and they make him king. Verse 13, then they hurried and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet saying, Jehu is king. All right, so Jehu is king to a limited number of people, but God has anointed him through the prophet. So what does he do? He goes about his particular mission. Remember the prophet told him, get rid of the house of Ahab. 
So he's on his mission. What does he do? He goes after Joram. Now, Joram is the son of Ahab. Ahab is dead by now. We're talking the house of Ahab, so he's going to go after Joram the king. So, verse 14. Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now, Joram, with all Israel, was defending Ramoth Gilead against Hazael, king of Aram. So, Joram was out there defending. He was in a battle. He was defending. And then he gets hurt. He gets wounded. So he goes to Jezreel to nurse his wounds. So he was wounded in battle. He goes to Jezreel. And King Ahaziah from the south is also there visiting him. And both of them are together in Jezreel. So the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel, verse 17. And he saw Jehu and his group coming to them. Take a horseman and send him to meet them and let him say is at peace. So Joram and Ahaziah are here. They're resting in Jezreel. Jehu is coming to Jezreel. He is on a mission. He wants to get rid of the house of Ahab. So the king sees Jehu coming. He sends one of his horsemen to find out, hey, is this peace or is this going to be war? And Jehu says, what have you got to do with peace? Get behind me. They send another horseman. The same thing. He says, what have, I, what have you got to do with peace? Get behind me. So after two of those, then Joram and Ahaziah decided to get on their chariots and come to meet Jehu. Then Joram said, verse 21, get ready. And they made his chariot ready. Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot. And they went out to meet Jehu and found him in the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. They meet in the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now, this is interesting because if you go back in 1 Kings uh, 19, I think it was, Naboth had a vineyard. And Ahab the king loved that vineyard and he just wanted it. But Naboth, being a righteous man, he says, This is my inheritance. I'm not going to give it away because. The old law had instructed people not to give their inheritance away from one tribe to another. So he says he won't do it. Then Ahab, in fact Jezebel, his wife, the queen, plotted to kill Jehu, uh, kill Naboth, killed him and took that vineyard. And it was prophesied that the house of Ahab will face trouble in this property. So it is very interesting that this meeting is taking place at this particular area in the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Jehu meets Joram and Ahaziah in Jezreel. Verses 24 through 26. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between his arms. And the arrow went through his heart and he sank in his chariot. There you go. So Jehu accomplishes the first part of his mission. He gets rid of Joram. And then he goes on to say this. Verse 26. Verse 25. Then Jehu said to Bibkar, his officer, take him up and cast him into the property of the field of Naboth the Jezreelite. Remember that was the case. For I remember when you and I were riding together after Ahab his father, that the Lord laid this oracle against him. 
Surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his son, says the Lord, and I will repay you in this property, says the Lord. Now then, take and cast him into the property according to the way, word of the Lord. So these circumstances are all being orchestrated. Now Jehu doesn't have control over it. Joram doesn't have control over it. Ahaziah doesn't have control over it. But they end up meeting at this place that belonged to Naboth because there was a prophesy done way back in time that the Lord would avenge uh, this killing of Naboth. So circumstances are not controlled, but God in his sovereign way brings his word to pass. In other words, God's word is always true and will stay true even when we think the situation and the circumstances and the timing may not be quite right. And then in verses 27 through 29, he not only, kings, not only kills King Joram, he also kills King Ahaziah. He also king, um, kills King Ahaziah. So, the first part of the mission, get rid of Joram, check. Ahaziah, well, we're not quite sure. The instruction was not very specific, but Ahaziah was related to the house of Ahab, so he killed him as well. So, this is what Jehu has done. Verses 30 through 37, Jezebel, the queen mother, sees Jehu coming in. Verse 30, when Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. And Jehu entered the gate. She said, is it well, Zimri, your master's murderer? Then he lifted up his face to the window and said, who is on my side? Who? And two or three officials looked down on him. So, Jehu is coming into Jezreel. The queen mother, Ahab's wife, and Joram's mother, she is up there. She paints her eyelids, fixes her hair, and sits at the window. And then she kind of insults Jehu. She calls him Zimri. Now, what is that all about? Well, a few chapters back, you will see that there was a person named Zimri. He was a captain or a commander for the king Elah. Now, Zimri decided he'll get rid of Elah and take the throne. He did that, sat on the throne for about seven days until he was deposed and he was not able to rule as he had planned to do. So, so Jezebel is kind of insulting Jehu. Hey, you're just like Zimri. You're coming in. You might last seven days. That's about it. You, try, you kill the king. You're trying, trying to take the throne, but you're not going to last. You're just basically Zimri. And a couple of officials who were there said they were on their side, on Jehu's side, and they throw Jezebel down the window. Throw her down, verse 33. So they threw her down, and then it is pretty gruesome here. Some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. And they, in verse 35 it says, They went to bury her, but they found nothing more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Why? Verse 36. Therefore they returned and told him, and he said, This is the word of the Lord which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the property of Jezreel the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel will be as dung on the face of the field in the property of Jezreel, so they cannot say, this is Jezebel. 
So, the prophecy comes true. God's word is true. It happens. Not because they were planning to make it happen, but the circumstances and the people were so ordered and so orchestrated that what God said became true. So the first part of the mission for Jehu, get rid of the house of Ahab, he got rid of Ahab, he got rid of Je Jezebel, the queen mother, he got rid of Ahaziah, which is kind of questionable because that was not clear instruction, but he got rid of Ahaziah as well. Now he goes on to the rest of his mission, verse uh, chapter 10. He kills all of Ahab's 70 sons. Now he does that through treachery, through deceit, and not quite the way God would do if he was God's, uh, if he was really after God's heart. So here's what he did. He told the guardians and the elders and said, pick the best of Ahab's sons and put him on the throne and let him fight to preserve the house of Ahab. Now all the elders really got scared and they were, they, they were, really, they, they were really frightened of Jehu and they said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We will serve you. So then Jehu tells them, all right, if you're really going to serve me, I want the heads of all these sons brought to me. So these people then do that and bring the heads of all his sons to Jehu. And then Jehu, through deceit, says, all right, who killed these people? He had instructed them to kill him. But he says, who killed them? If you guys kill them, I'm going to get rid of you as well. So there's massacre and he kills the priests, the acquaintances, and all those people around Ahab and his children, and they're all completely destroyed. He's gotten rid of them. Now, this is a gruesome account here, isn't it? What about all this killing? Does, really God, does God really endorse this kind of killing? I mean, what, what is this? Well, there are a couple of ways we can think about this. First, God's instruction to destroy is always an execution of God's judgment. When God instructs destruction, it is execution of judgment. So, for example, in Genesis 15, 16, God tells Abraham that his descendants will be in a foreign land for 400 years, and then they will come back and destroy the Amorites. Why or when? When the iniquities of the Amorites is complete. In other words, God is going to wait to execute judgment through his people. He will wait till the Amorites have sinned enough to warrant judgment. Just something to think about. Uh, in Deuteronomy 9, 4 through 5, we hear this. God tells the children of Israel that they are going to possess the land not because of their righteousness or uprightness, but they're going to do that because of the wickedness of the nations around them. You see that? So this destruction that God calls for is really execution of judgment. So God's patience and God's justice is at play here. Regardless, that is what they were called to obey. Since Christ has come into the world then, God's requirement for us is that we love our enemies, that we pray for those who persecute us. But this is what is important for us to remember. Whether it was then or now, God requires us to come to him by faith. That is, we trust him and willingly obey what he asks us to do. It is by faith then, it is by faith now that we can come to God. So he gets rid of Ahab's children. 
he doesn't stop there. He goes on to kill all of King Ahaziah's relatives, verses 13 through 14. Take them alive. So they took them alive, verse 14, and killed them at the pit of Beth-Ekad, 42 men, and he left none of them. So, Ahab, gone. Jezebel, gone. Ahab's children, gone. Ahaziah, gone. Ahaziah's kids, gone. So he's executing his mission. And now in verse 15, he wants to display his zeal for the Lord. Note this. Now when he had departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart right? Meaning, are you loyal to me? As my heart is with your heart. Are we loyal to one another? And Jehonadab answered, It is. Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. And he gave him his hand. He took him up into the chariot. He said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he made him ride in his chariot. Now you got to wonder, who is this Jehonadab? And what is this Rechab account all about? Well, there is reference to all of this, right? It's not just pulling names from here, there, and everywhere, right? In Jeremiah 35, we see this, uh, that Rechab, uh, Jehonadab, is referred to. Uh, they are referenced there because God commends the faithfulness of the Rechabites. There was an instance there where God was comparing the Rechabites to his own children. He said the Rechabites listened to their fathers and their forefathers. But you, O oh children, you don't listen to your father, God. So he commended the Rechabites. They were known as people who, who were looked upon favorably by God. In fact, God says Jehonadab will always have descendants who worship him. So Jehonadab was uh, treated favorably and one that, uh, one that worshipped Yahweh. So that may be why Jehu wanted to show him, look, I have the zeal for the Lord. Come with me. Let me show you something else. So verse 17, when he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained uh, to Ahab in Samaria until he had destroyed him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. So his mission, he is accomplishing all of that. Now, in verses 18 through 25, we find that Jehu just not, does not just stop there. He gets rid of Baal and Baal worshippers and everything surrounding that worship. He destroys it. What, what does he do? Again, he does it through a little bit of deceit. He invites all of the Baal worshippers to come to the temple of Baal. He brings them all in. He tells his people, stand outside, don't let anybody escape. Then he makes, he makes an offering to Baal and then he asks his people to come in and kill all of the Baal worshippers. So killed Baal, Baal worshippers, destroyed uh, all, of, all of the pillars and everything that surrounded worship. In fact, verse 35, 25 through 27. Then Jehu's men went into the innermost fortress of the temple of Baal. They dragged out the sacred pillar used in the worship of Baal and burned it. They smashed the sacred pillar and wrecked the temple of Baal, converting it into a public toilet as it remains to this day. He completely eradicated Baal out of Israel. Pretty good, isn't it? Got rid of Ahab, got rid of all his kids, got rid of Jezebel, got rid of Ahaziah, got rid of all his kids, got rid of Baal worship. Looks like he's 
on the right track. Verse 29. However, verse 28, thus Jehu eradicated Baal out of Israel. Then you go to verse 29. However, as for the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin, from these Jehu did not depart, even the golden calves that were at Bethel and that were at Dan. So Jehu did not destroy the golden calves that Jeroboam had made and, and, and deposited in Bethel and Dan. What is that all about? Well, Jeroboam at one point was the king of the northern kingdom. So the prophet Ahijah told him, look, if you fear the Lord and walk in his ways, then your kingdom will endure. And he was concerned about this. He was in the north, Jeroboam. Rehoboam was in the south. Now, this is what Jeroboam was concerned about. He said, if I let my people go down to the south to worship, they might just fall in love with, love with Rehoboam and everything there and stay there and not come back. So he said, okay, let me do this. Let me build two calves, one in Bethel, one in Dan, so that people don't have to go down to Jerusalem. They can just stay there and worship. And he said, behold, the gods that brought you out of Egypt. Remember, Aaron had made one golden calf, saying, behold, the God who brought you out of Egypt. So now Jeroboam had done this. And this was a problem. Because this was something, the sin of Jeroboam, that Jehu did not depart from. from. So Jehu seemed like a devoted follower. As we said, Ahab's gone, Ahab's kids are gone, Jezebel's gone, Ahaziah's gone, Baal worship, all gone. God was pleased with Jehu. So says verse 30, at least the beginning of it. The Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in executing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit, shall sit on the throne of Israel. So far, so good. He's done well. God is commending him. Verse 31. But, uh-oh, Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel sin. Je Jehu, in spite of accomplishing all that he did, his mission, he was not careful to obey the law of the Lord. He did not depart. He refused to turn away from the sins that Jeroboam had led Israel to commit. So what happens, beginning in verse 32, Israel starts getting sliced off. People are going to attack, and the, and, and the region, the nation, is going to get disintegrated. What do we learn from all of this? Well, the first thing we see is that God is sovereign. Even though nothing might seem to happen, in the case of Naboth, Naboth the Jezreelite being murdered by Ahab, and a prophesy that Ahab and Jezebel will face in that area, God avenges all of this in his time. Ahab is gone, but Joram is the one who's facing it, and so is Jezebel. God is sovereign. He's always shaping circumstances and events and moving people to accomplish his will because what he says, he will always do. We also learn that Jehu is anointed and given a mission. He is all action. 
He carries out the mission with zeal. God commends him for that. His zeal is commendable. But he's not a fully devoted follower of God. Why? Because he's not careful to obey the Lord with all his heart. That's what this, uh, the text says. He lacks the devotion to pay attention to everything that God says. That brings us to a question. How devoted are we to God? Are we being careful to obey the Lord wholeheartedly and willingly? We sure don't want to be like Jehu, do we? A man of zeal for God. But God's commentary on his life being he was not careful to obey the Lord. Commendable zeal, but questionable devotion. Think about what Jehu did. He basically violated the first, violated the first two commandments. The first commandment said, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second one said, you shall have no graven images or worship no idols. By not destroying or taking out those two calves, he basically violated commandment number one and commandment number two. If he did that, then violation of the rest of the commandments would be very natural and sequential. So how does idolatry and stuff play out in our lives? One thing that often prevents us from being fully devoted to the Lord is idolatry. Something that prevents us from being fully devoted followers of Jesus is often idolatry that stands in the way. Now, we might say, well, we don't worship any idols. Well, idols are really God's substitutes. In fact, I think it was John Calvin, theologian, who said that our hearts are idol factories. We can crank out idols all the time. What is an idol? It is anything or any person that we look to to satisfy our needs and wants. Whatever it is that we look to, to satisfy our needs and wants is an idol. So now we can start thinking about, do we have any idols? We can ask those questions to us. Tim Keller puts it well. He says, an idol is anything that is so central to your life that you cannot have a meaningful life if you lose it. Anything that you and I have, if we lose it, and find life is meaningless, we might want to suspect that to be an idol. Let's take this idea of significance. We all, uh, we all have a need for significance. We want to feel that we are significant. We want our lives to be significant. We want our work to be significant. Now here is where there's potential for idolatry. Where do you and I look to? Or whom do you and I look to to satisfy our need for significance? Do I look to my work to satisfy my need for significance? Do I look to my spouse to satisfy my need for significance? Do I look to my kids to satisfy my need for significance? If I do, then I'm going to do everything to control their lives so that it will be just the way that will make me feel significant. Do I look to my possessions? Now the point is that all of those situations can change in a moment. I can get laid off. Those, my spouses and my children may not meet my expectations. My possessions may disappear. Will my life then become meaningless if I lose any of these things? 
If we think we do, then we may want to suspect that that is perhaps an idol, something that is so much more important than God himself. Here is another simple way to identify an idol that may be in our hearts. Let's say I'm characterized by impatience. Always impatient and getting angry when I don't get my way. It might indicate that my desire to have my way is so much more important than God who orchestrates my circumstances. My desire to do well, my desire to have my way animates me and moves me a whole lot more than God and his desires. If my desire to have my way is more important than to trust God with people and situations that I cannot change, then I am bound to look to someone or something so that I can have my way, someone or something other than God to meet my needs that would be idolatry. So you find that idolatry is all around us and we can crank out idols in our hearts, which then gets in the way of our being fully devoted followers of Jesus, fully devoted followers of God. Well, if that is idolatry, what exactly is true worship? What exactly is worship of the one true God? Is it the one hour that we gather together on Sunday morning? Warren Wearsby, a well-known teacher from yesteryear, says, Worship is the believer's response of all that they are, mind, emotions, will, body, to what God is and says and does. In other words, worship is our response to who God is, what he says, and what he does. Think about that. If God is worthy to be praised, when we praise him, we worship him. If God is our refuge and strength, when we pray and depend on him, we're worshiping him. If God is worthy of being obeyed, then when we take him seriously and follow his instruction, we're really worshiping him. My wife Susan and I have been watching the Olympic highlights every evening, uh, catching the highlights, uh, how much ever possible. And uh, you may have noticed Sydney McLaughlin. She broke the world record for the 400 meters hurdles, and yesterday she was part of the team that did the 4x400 relay and won the gold medal. She says something in a post, a recent post that captures worship very well, and how it ties to a willing obedience. Let me read that for you. It'll be on the screen as well. Let me start off by saying what an honor it is to be able to represent not only my country, but also the kingdom of God. What I have in Christ is far greater than what I have or don't have in life. I pray my journey may be a clear depiction of submission and obedience to God. Catch that. Even when it doesn't make sense. Even when it doesn't seem possible, he will make a way out of no way. Not for my own gratification, but for his glory. I have never seen God fail in my life, in anyone's life for that matter. Just because I may not win every race or receive every one of my heart's desires does not mean God has failed. His will is perfect. 
and he has prepared for me, he has prepared me for a moment such as this, that I may use the gifts he has given me to point all the attention back to him. Superb theology, isn't it? God hasn't failed anybody. It's all about submission and obedience and a willing one at that to God. That is what he calls for. So when we willingly submit and obey him, we're saying God is worthy of that and that becomes worship. If God is worthy of our best because he calls us to do everything as unto him, if he is worthy of our best, then the best accounting, the best teaching, the best nursing, the best firefighting, and the best cooking, we worship him because God has asked us to do everything as unto him. If God has created us in his image, when we represent him well, we worship him. When we demonstrate grace, giving others what they don't deserve, we worship him. When we demonstrate love, love the unlovable, we worship him. When we speak the truth, we worship him. When we seek to follow Jesus, we worship him. So worship is a whole lot more than what we do on a Sunday morning. In fact, worship is what we do in all of life. Our entire lives should be an act of worship. What we do and say and think should be that which ascribes worth to God. Because God is who he is and because what God says is true and because we submit to him, our lives should reflect that. Worship, therefore, is coextensive with life. All of life should be worship. And this gathering is a corporate gathering where we come together to praise God and to hear from him so that we may be aligned to his word. Jehu had a zeal for God, which was great. He was all action. However, he lacked the devotion to keep the first and the second commandment. Remove all idolatry so that he and all his people, all the people of Israel, could worship right. He was full of zeal, but he lacked the devotion to carefully obey everything that God had asked him to do. So how can we remove an idol and worship God this week? May I suggest that we represent him well? And here is one way to think about it. He is a gracious God. So as an act of worship, if we represent him well, we will demonstrate grace. So can we commit to this? For this coming week, we are going to demonstrate grace. That means give people what they don't deserve to every member in our family. That would be an act of worship for a week. Demonstrate grace. Give what people don't deserve to everyone in your family this week. That's just one way we can worship him. So watch out for a zeal for God, doing all kinds of things. They're good things without a devotion to God and his word. May God help us so that we are not only full of zeal for the Lord, but we are also careful to walk in the law of the Lord. Father, we thank you for uh, what we hear and what we learn about Jehu and his zeal and his lack of devotion. Thank you that you give us these things, these descriptions, so that by encouragement of the scriptures, 
we might persevere with hope. And Lord, as we hear this word, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move our hearts, our wills, our desires, so that we might want to move in step with you, that we might want to pay careful attention to everything that you say and all that you ask us to do, so that in faith we might make steps to move in step with your will, so that you might be honored, that you might get the glory, and that it might be for our good. To that and we are desperately needy and we need your help. And we pray you'd help us because that's your desire as we ask these things in Jesus, our Lord's mighty name. Amen.